Um, everybody, this is Derek Webb. Derek's on our team here. Say good morning. Um, morning. Derek is going to be the voice of the online community. He's going to be uh, reading their questions off so that we make sure they're involved and included, just like y'all in the room are. I know we have a number of people who are in the room today for the very first time ever, and we're so glad you're here to join us. I know we have people online for the very first time ever. We're so glad you're here and joining us. Um, and really, just maybe a commercial or two before we jump in to let everybody get their questioning minds ramped up. Um, this Wednesday night at Reimagine, we do this thing every week called Reimagine on Zoom, and it's a conversation. Sometimes it's really an in-depth theological slobber knocker. Um, sometimes it's just kind of fun and silly. Um, and so this, this week we're going to dip into the theological side a little bit. So we've been in this series called What About? So this Wednesday night at Reimagine, we're going to have a conversation, What About Easter? Um, and what I want to do is just for a few moments, I want to trace sort of the developing tradition around Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament, and then open it up for conversation, questions, and all sorts of fun things. So that's happening on Wednesday night. Next Sunday, we're starting a brand new series called Unhelpful, where I'm just going to give you a lot of unhelpful information um, <laughs> that you don't even need. And uh, no, so how many of you have ever been, you've gone through something, you've had something difficult happen, you're struggling, you're grieving, you're processing, and somebody just says, the most unhelpful thing you could possibly imagine. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been one of those people dropping that unhelpful? Yeah, we've all been there. And so we're going to begin next week by talking about this idea that often people will say to us when something happens, well, it was all part of God's plan. And I think it's maybe on Easter, it's especially pertinent to talk about, like, does God schedule Good Fridays? Um, is that what God's up to in the world? Uh, and so we'll be talking about that next week. And I think that's all I have in the way of commercials. So we've been in this series called What About, where we've been processing the whatabouts as we've, lots of us have undergone faith shift, transformation, deconstruction, whatever language you want to use. And during that process, we begin to understand more of what we don't think and don't believe and don't know anymore. Um, but often for many of us, there are all these, well, what about this and what about that? And so in this series, I've tried to respond to that. I also understood that each and every week, I was probably saying something that led to a 50 other whatabouts, at least I hope, because um, I think a, a halfway decent sermon doesn't answer the questions as much as it stimulates more questions. Um, and so if you have those, what we're going to do is we'll just take it, just feel free to throw your hand up. Um, I'll try, one of us will restate the question, and then after you ask it, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll go online, so we'll go in-room online. So does anybody want to break the ice? You know what I love about this? If this totally stinks, it's not just my fault. <laughs> like, most weeks, if the sermon's terrible, it's like, that guy, whew. Today, it's like, us. We all really gave a bad sermon today. Why do we have a bunny? You're not allowed to have pets in here. This is a restaurant, <laughs> if you brought a bunny. Um, you know, uh, the whole Easter money thing, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of a, as uh, the Christian tradition spread, it bumped into other cultures and it absorbed some things. And I wouldn't even really consider that a Christian tradition, right? It's just something that gets associated with the springtime and Easter and um, slightly terrifying when you think about it. <laughs> I think in the original, what, whatever, whatever the Last Supper was, I, I have all sorts of questions about 
how much of what we have been condensed into Holy Week, right? These several days in the Gospels that lead up to Jesus' death and resurrection. How much of that was actually squeezed into a week and how much of it was stretched out to a period of time? So I have questions about that for lots of reasons. I think that if we are actually in context, if we had a time machine and we went back, whatever we would find, I don't think we would find women in the kitchen. I think we would find them around the table. And I think they would be engaging with Jesus. I think that's true. Um, I think, you know, so, so much of the Gospels, of course, like if you were to go, if you go to the Easter story, and we're going to talk about this Wednesday night, and you read, one, you read Mark's version, it's very different from Matthew's, which is different from Luke's, which is different from John's, and John has two, and both of them are very different from each other. But one of the, the standard detail that is the same across, and it, the number varies and all that, but who is it that actually discovers that Jesus is alive? It's the women, which to me is a historical echo, because in that world, women were not considered reliable witnesses. So it seems like if you're wanting to tell a story and get everybody to believe you, then you, you open with Simon Peter at the tomb on resurrection morning. But you don't find that. You find women. So I, I think women were deeply involved in the movement of Jesus. I think he led an egalitarian movement where women had just as much um, say and just as much participation as the men did. I think that's part of what raised some eyebrows, especially in Roman culture. Um, so I, you know, and I think the church has gotten away from that. Um, the first people to preach the Easter message were women disciples. Um, and it, it's often the women who, like, they went to the tomb anyway. Where were, the, where were the men? In John's gospel, the men are hiding in a locked room because they're afraid. <laughs> and the women are, like, going to the tomb, like, bring it on. Right? So I, at the Last Supper, I think da Vinci painted that. And it, by the point da Vinci gets to that, the Christian tradition is so overlaid with patriarchy um, which I think patriarchy is anti-gospel. Is, is that, was that okay? Thanks. Yes. Um, okay, so I've got a handful of great questions coming in from our people online. Here's the first one. It says, uh, in Matthew 21, leading to Palm Sunday, the author mentions uh, Zechariah 9 as a prophecy. Is that actually talking about Jesus? Oh, it's, I find this to be a really important thing to keep coming back to for Christians because of what I see happening on the Internet. Um, and when you engage in top discussions with people on the Internet, they make this assumption, well, it all has to be true and it all has to be literal because the prophets said it. And here's just the truth. When Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew particularly, is the one who really introduces, I mean, it pops up other places, but Matthew really wants to connect Jesus with the Hebrew scriptures. He wants to connect Jesus with the tradition with Moses. And so Matthew will often say, this happened in order to fulfill the words of the prophet. Here's what you need to know. Before Matthew wrote that text, nobody read that prophet that way. They just, they just didn't. When they read Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed, they didn't think about, this is prophesying 700 years in the future, some, something else. Um, they were talking about something within their own day within their own context. The, a prophet speaks to the moment, not the future. Now, th it may include the future, right? It may say, if, if we don't amend our ways and if we don't pursue justice, this entire thing is going to come apart in the future. If we don't care for the planet, this whole thing's going away, right? But prophets can speak somewhat, to, but it's not primarily about the future. It's a word to that day and time. Um, that, the reason, and it's brilliant, Ma Matthew, what Matthew does is what we kind of all do. Matthew 
and the early followers of Jesus had an experience of Jesus that overflowed their boundaries, and it, it kind of pushed them past what they had known. They could not read the Bible the same way after they experienced Jesus. So what they did, and, but, they, but they loved the Bible, and they had to somehow make sense of it. So what they did is they went back to the Bible with their experiences of Jesus at the forefront, and when they began to read the scriptures, they saw the Jesus story popping up all over the place. Now, the prophets weren't writing about that then, but their experience led them to interpret it that way. And that Zechariah 9 story is interesting, why Matthew would quote it. Because sometimes when they quote a text, they don't quote all of it, but they, it's a wink and a nudge, right? So this text from, uh, from Zechariah, which is about, look, uh, Zion, your king comes to you riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. The next line says, and he will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. Now, why would Matthew put that text on a peace march, a nonviolent protest march that Jesus is conducting in Jerusalem as a way of saying, Jesus is leading a movement, and it's a movement to end violence and war, and so Jesus is not going to take up the... We're going into Jerusalem, and people are going to expect Jesus to take up a sword, and instead of taking up a sword, he's going to die on a cross. And there's something powerful about that. They're in some ways reclaiming their story and seeing it through the lens of Jesus. So originally, no, I don't think so. Now, lots and lots of people might say, would say it differently, but I don't think that was originally written. I don't think Zachariah was going, in a, you know, several hundred years, there's going to be a guy on a donkey, and his name's Jesus. Um, I think that was a Christian interpretation, or what became Christian. Stop me from my caveats. Love it. Um, <laughs> in the room, next. Adam. It's in the Bible. <laughs> specific, specific question? Yeah, uh, predetermination versus free will, God choosing Jacob's his daughter, whichever one that is. Yeah. The potter and the clay, that whole. Yeah, I think that. Just a reminder to restate questions for our Oh, uh, he's asking, what about Romans 9, this idea of predestination versus free will? People often read Paul's uh, text in, in Romans 9 about God predis predisposing some people to. Essentially Calvinism, uh, right? How many of you are familiar with Calvinism? I'm sorry. It's, 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 it's not a very loving theology, and it, it, it kind of leads itself to a lot of self-importance. I, I, it was sort of the, when I was growing up, I was in college in the Southern Baptist world. It was sort of Calvinism was the new thing uh, that everybody was talking about. Uh, I don't think that's at all what Paul meant. I think John Calvin's reading of, of that it only makes sense within Calvin's wor worldview. Um, and it's, it, it's really, really, ch it's a challenge to go back to an ancient text, understanding that they were in a very different context than ours. But what we often do is we import our context and our lens onto them and assume, well, because it says this, this is all it could mean. But Paul actually ends up quoting this thing about Jacob and Esau. So you actually have to go back into the Jacob and Esau story and see what's going on there. Because here's what's interesting about the Jacob. I'm just going to keep going. Here's what's interesting about the Jacob and Esau story. Jacob is not the good guy in the story. Now, you've probably been taught to read it that way. Jacob was chosen and Esau wasn't. Jacob wasn't really chosen. He stole it. And he has to run away because his brother's angry. Now, how many of us have, you know, how many, do you know anybody who's ever been in an inheritance squabble? Now, imagine somebody absconding with all of it. But what's fascinating about that story, at the end, Jacob is coming home. He's been on the run, and he's coming home, and he's got his family, and he's got all of his possessions. 
And somebody sends Jacob this note that says, um, your brother Esau is on his way to meet you. And Jacob just is like, this is not good for business. But when they end up meeting, Esau is kind and compassionate to his brother. And Jacob actually says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Who's the hero of the story? Who's the one who says, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to stop this back and forth, this tit for tat, this you do this to me, so I do this to you. I'm going to stop it. And I'm going to just say, you're my brother. You're welcome to stay here. You're welcome to go, whatever. And it's this beautiful moment. So I think we actually have to understand what Paul's doing, even in terms of the actual entire story of Jacob and Esau. Um, that sometimes in the Bible, what you, um, I actually told somebody this the other day, assumption is a hermeneutic. And here's what I, a hermeneutic is the lens through which you interpret the Bible. And for many of us, we have been so, it's been so ingrained in us to read certain stories certain ways that we completely skip over every one of the details in the story because we've been taught that this is where it's supposed to go. And when you actually really read it closely, sometimes it will surprise you. I was in my 30s when I realized Esau was the hero. And I grew up seeing, you know, Jacob and Esau flannel graft. And, and so, yeah, I think that, that interpreting the texts with Paul, who was so saturated in the imagery and metaphor and language of the Hebrew scriptures, you have to do a little bit more work on that than just reading what the text says, if that makes sense. Great. I, I keep thinking, like, how in the world are we going to transition out of each one of these? Because I have, like, follow-ups. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, if you also have follow-ups, uh, keep them in your head. Because we're going we're gonna, to hope you brought a sandwich. <laughs> might be here for a while. Um, so here's a great one from the online community is, um, and I might even have a question about this question, but uh, if the Immaculate Conception is a fallacy, who do you believe was the true biological father of Jesus? Mm. And, I, and my, now my question was, the, are the virgin birth and the Immaculate Conception no. the same thing? They're not. The Immaculate Conception in Catholic theology and dogma speaks to the conception of Mary. Of Mary, yeah. Because when you realize that, um, that, that I'm sorry? The, immac the Immaculate Conception in Catholic theology is actually speaking to the birth of Jesus' mother Mary. Because when you realize that, that the, the female participant brings DNA to the mix... You have to somehow get, okay, so if, if he didn't have a biological father, but he had a biological mother, we still have to deal with a bit of humanity in there that might have slipped through. And so you, you end up having to create a narrative that Mary was actually born similarly. Immaculately conceived. Immaculately conceived. Yep. Uh, with no stain of human sin. Uh, so who, who was Jesus' biological father? Uh, I feel like Mari right now. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to bring him out. <laughs> and here he comes. <laughs> <laughs> we have the results of the test. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I, there's no way of knowing. Um, you know, there, there, uh, I don't know. I don't, think there's, I don't think there's any way to know. I, I think what's very clear is that Jesus' paternity was in question, and that even bleeds through some in the gospel accounts. So even in Mark, Jesus is called, I believe it's in Mark, he's called the son of Mary. But in that day, you would never call somebody the son of, in the mother's name, you would always say the son of a father. Um, there's actually a line in the Gospel of John where Jesus is talking to some of his uh, inquisitors about being true children of Abraham. And they actually say back to him, we know who our father is. Rude. 
right? Like, but there's sort of this, that, that, that bleeds through. And as early as the second century in the 100s, you have um, early Christian apologists trying to make sense of what we do with this. I mean, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that includes five women, one of them Mary. All five of them were what you would say in, in the ancient world, you would use maybe the language of they were sexually compromised. And Jesus' mother is included in that list as well. So it's almost like Matthew is like, remember this? Something good happened. Remember this? Something good happened. Remember this? Now I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> and Matthew is sort of preparing them I think, for the narrative. So I, I think it's clear that Jesus' paternity was in question. I think that also is one of the reasons he very likely would have, uh, there are lots of reasons, being a citizen under uh, an oppressive empire, um, being born of questionable paternity, likely not being from a family of wealth and privilege. Jesus, it's very clear why he identified with the margins and why he attracted and included the people he did. It's very likely that Jesus maybe, I mean, we don't have data on this, right? But if we creatively try to reconstruct Jesus' story, I'm sure he knew what it was like to be on the outside in some ways. Do we have a follow-up to that? Okay, get one ready. We'll follow up here. Yeah. So the question is, where did the whole idea of, you know, essentially true love weights and purity culture come from? Um, the pits of hell <laughs> is actually where purity culture came from. Uh, and it can go back there as quick as it wants. Um, so where did it come from? I, you know, I, I think... In the Jewish tradition, Judaism is not anti-sex. It's not. That is a particularly Christian uh, thing. And I think it's hard to make a case that it existed before Saint, uh, who we call St. Augustine or Augustine. Um, and uh, he, when he converted, he had had quite an adventurous life. And I think he felt a lot of guilt and shame over that. And a lot of what we process today... Um, now there are, are there, there's a couple you know Paul will talk about like it's you know if you don't if you're not married don't get married well why is Paul saying that because they're expecting a, a cataclysmic end at any moment right that's why they're saying hey don't start anything new but that gets read again without context and, and without understanding culture that gets read in ways that demonize um, sex and and make it evil and and I think Augustine was a big part of that. Um, and I, I, I really feel for him because it must have been miserable. And lots of us who grew up in purity culture and know what it's like to carry around the guilt and shame that purity culture heaps onto you, you, you understand that like, like living that way and with that understanding of uh, like it's it kind of the guilt and the shame and all that is just heavy and it's not ours to carry. Um, and so I, I feel as, as frustrated as I get with Augustine over those sorts of things, I feel bad for him too because... He must have been pretty miserable with that view. Hmm. Um, so here's from the online community. 
what did Jesus mean in John 3 when he says, you must be born again, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit? Yeah, so that great conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. So what Jesus is doing is he's talking about the kingdom of God. And for Jesus, the kingdom of God isn't this thing that's up there in the sky and it's coming down. For Jesus, the kingdom of God is right here and right now. And it's all about developing eyes to see it. And it's about developing a heart that is willing to be transformed to really experience it. He's not talking about going to heaven when you die. He's not saying, well, if you really want to really get to heaven, you've got to be born again. And the actual language is born from above in Greek. Um, when, growing up where I did, we, we often heard about being born again. Um, uh, same thing, right? But it uh, had the same general uh, meaning. It, oh, you have to, rep- you have to make this, do this prayer, do this ritual so you can go to heaven when you die. It's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that the kingdom of God is a certain kind of existence. It's a certain way of being human with other human beings, being human in community. And unless you are transformed, unless you're given new eyes, unless you repent in the truest sense of that word, which means to change your mind, unless you change your mind about how you're living, about how you're living in sort of this maybe a self-focused, self-absorbed, greedy, stingy, unless you have your eyes open to see like, if we all share our bread, there's enough bread for it. We could feed 5,000 people with one person's lunch if everybody just shares what they have, right? So I, I think when Jesus says that to Nicodemus, he's saying, if you want to see and experience what it means to live in the community of God, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, then it's going to require a process of transformation. Um, and, and there's a reason why certain people, like the rich young ruler gets that information, like, oh, you want to experience the kingdom? Well, just go sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and let's go. And he walks away sad because that's not what he necessarily wanted to hear. He wanted an easy three-step plan. And Jesus was like, this is going to require a whole different way of seeing the world and your relationship to it. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Let's go here, and then we'll go here next. What? Brian, for $29.95, I'll tell you the secret. Okay. So I'm going to do a whole week on this later in the series, but I'll just give you a little bit on the front end. And what was that question? Is oh, I'm sorry. I keep forgetting there. That's what um, I'm here for. Um, what, uh, like, what, what would... in in our context, what would demons and, and evil spirits be? Mm-hmm. It's interesting that we often call them evil, and I assume that's what the text said, but most of the time it says unclean, which is a little different. Um, and here's my lens for demonic stories in the New Testament now is pretty much this. I think they're meant to symbolize what oppressive empires do to people. Like if you read the story of Legion, which is the one you referenced, Brian, um, when they meet that man who is possessed by like more than 6,000 demons, because that's what a Roman legion was. So if Mark, if, Mark doesn't, if Mark wants us to take this story literally, he's got to not be so on the nose with it. Like this guy is possessed by a Roman legion. 
And when we meet him, he's in deep pain. He's howling. He's among the tombs. He's harming himself. He's in so much pain. And after Jesus sends the legion out into the pigs and they run back into the water, he's sitting there dressed in his right mind. He's, he's, he's been transformed. It's almost like what Mark is saying. If we're going to be truly healed, we have to get rid of the empire. And Mark is also saying in this story, Jesus shows us a way to do this. And it's not through hacking and killing and brutalizing the empire. We'll never win that fight. Here's how Jesus taught us to get rid of Rome. Don't carry Roman coins. Because if you don't have Caesar's coin, you can't give Caesar Caesar's coin. Instead, let's get together. And everybody bring the food you have. And we'll make a table where everybody's equal and everybody eats as much as they need. And we'll make sure everybody's taken care of. And if somebody's in trouble, we'll find a way to make sure that they have a place to sleep. And if somebody's hurting, we're going to find a way to love them and surround them in community. Um, Jesus is offering a very human way of countering empire. You know what empire does? Let's form communities that do the opposite of that, which I think is a sad indictment of so much of what the church has become in the West because it has adopted the practices of empire, it has adopted the posture of empire, and it has adopted the goals of empire, which is up and to the right, total success all the time without thinking about it. And, and right now we have story after story of people who are being chewed up and spit out by this thing called the church that's supposed to be a source of healing and wholeness. Um, and so I'll, I'll dive into that more in the next series, but that's what, um, that's what I've got. Right. Okay, so after this question, we're going to go here and then here. Okay. Um, so let's see. What, how would you talk about a personal relationship with God? It's very emphasized in fundamentalism, but it's hard for me to know what to do with during my deconstruction. Yeah. Um, that's just not a word that shows up in the Bible. Mm. Um, and so many of us were taught to prioritize our personal relationship with Jesus. And we were told that you could do that by like spending 25 minutes reading the Bible and praying in the morning. Um, and that the, all that matters was you and Jesus. Are you and Jesus right? It seems like what Jesus thought, though, is that like if you and everybody else around you aren't right, then it really kind of puts a roadblock in the relationship with the divine. Um, and I would say in the Eastern world, where Jesus has come from, because Christianity may be a Western religion now, but it didn't start out that way. I think that Jesus clearly prioritized community and that my relationship with the divine is tied up in my relationship with you and that I cannot, uh, I can't not care about you. I can't harm you and, and mistreat you and feel like everything's okay with me and God. That the reality is that all of these relationships are connected and that if I'm becoming a transformed human being, then the way I treat you and the way I live in the world and the way I show up in the world should be different. Um, but so much of it, yeah, anybody ever, were you ever told like being a good person is not enough? Like, and almost like being good was, something was wrong with it. Like, oh, that's a good person over there. They're probably going to hell. Um, when in reality, I think being a, a good human being is actually the point. And if you're holding onto a religion that doesn't help you become a better human being, then I think maybe it's time to let it go. And I think that that's what lots of people are doing right now. Um, I think there are ways of holding onto faith. There are ways of remaining Christian. I, you know, I'll, I think I'll be Christian until I die. And it, there's no, like, no evidence. Like if somebody pulled out a box and like, these are Jesus's bones. Cool. Like I don't, like, that's not going to change the game for me because I think Jesus had this wisdom and I, in him I see a life I want to embody. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I think lots of people are, are, are bailing partly because they don't feel like there are other options. And some people are bailing because, bailing because the trauma has been so great that they just need to be away. And I, instead of trying to pull people back in who are experiencing that, I think we need to do the loving pastoral thing and say, we want you to be a whole, healthy, thriving human being, even if that means you're not doing this anymore. Because that's what I think actual pastoral ministry looks like. It's trying to help people become fully alive and flourish regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Did Judas give Jesus the kiss as a sign of sexuality or as an act of betrayal, primarily? Well, I have so much I would love to say about Judas. You know this. We've had this conversation. There's, like, I'm not even going to start. Stop me if I start. Um, uh, it was very common in the ancient world, in the ancient um, at Palestine, for men to exchange kisses like that as a form of greeting. There's actually a line in the New Testament that, where... Um, Somebody, maybe it's somebody writing in Paul's name, or maybe it's Paul, but it actually says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I always felt like all the churches I ever went to that were biblical, none of them did that. Um, right? So we, we clearly have our lines. Uh, you know, I think it was, I think it was um, in the Gospels, I think it was symbolic, symbolic of betrayal. I have all sorts of questions about the Judas character, though, that I'll save for another time when we have... I can stretch my legs on it. What about Judas? There. That can be, we'll get it in the, what next, about uh, Judas? the next round. Yeah. Uh, do you need one from me? Uh, yeah, and then we'll go over here. Okay. Um, if the Bible isn't inerrant, how can we know which parts are true and which parts aren't? Um, so that's a great question. I think fundamentalists would hate this answer. Uh, I think part of it is when you read something, I, I think it resonates or it doesn't. Like, if I read a text that tells me to kill all my enemies, I don't care what book it's printed in. That doesn't resonate with me as being a good way to be human. And so, I, you know, I think if we really entrust ourselves to the guidance of spirit, and if we actually think that whoever wrote it or said it, that in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I have a lot more to teach you, but you can't handle it now, you can't bear it, I will send the spirit of truth, and she will guide you into all wisdom and truth. If we believe that's true, then I assume that as grown-up human beings, we can sift and sort in community. I, and I think that's the other problem. We, we often read the Bible in isolation and make decisions about it without ever talking to another human being and being informed by their experience or their interpretation, their understanding. And this thing was never, been, was never meant to be engaged um, just in private. I think it's fine. I read the Bible. So I read the Bible for fun. Sometimes don't judge me. Um, and, but if, and if you do too, I see you, and I know there, there are a few of us out there. Um, so yes, of course, I read, I, I read it, but I think it's actually meant to be wrestled with com in, a, in a communal sense. And so... Um, and the typical hermeneutic for, at least in Protestant circles, has been that the explicit inter interprets the <laughs> implicit, but I feel like people have had a hard time with that, where the majority seems to say this, and if that says that and that doesn't seem right... If you're in the inerrancy camp, then it's like, well, how do you possibly yeah. reconcile it if the explicit seems to say that that doesn't make sense? We can't kind of let go of that in our minds. And one of the ways has to stay. One of the ways we've done that is by just translating the Bible differently, right? Exactly. So, for example, here's a fun little fact. Who killed Goliath? 
you're afraid to answer. Look, I know it says David, but does it? Yeah, so it says David in, uh, for Samuel, right? Here's what's interesting. When you get to the end of 2 Samuel, there's just this, it looks like there was just a bunch of material that the editor, because it was written in stages, there's a bunch of material the editor had that they didn't know what to do with, so they stuck it on the end. And some of the stuff in the end gives this line about this one person who worked for David, one of David's mighty men, they were called, who killed Goliath. Now, we have two, in the text, we have David killing Goliath, or we have this guy who worked for David, and David took credit for it. Knowing politicians, which one seems more accurate? <laughs> now, here's the interesting thing. I grew up, after I was, you know, grew up in a King James-only church, I discovered the NIV. And in the NIV, do you know what they do with that text, at least in the older, like the 1984 edition? They make the person back here at the end kill the brother of Goliath. Because we can't have somebody else getting credit for David's big kill that put him on the map. And so what do we do? We, we just find ways of interpreting. Every interpretation, every translation is an interpretation. That's why some translations are better than others, because some interpretations, in my mind, are better than others. Now, we can disagree about which ones are better than others, um, but I think that's, that's a really great point, that we, when, you, when the, you have to make the Bible all say the same thing, you miss the nuance, and you do violence to what the authors were actually doing. I'm sorry, you cannot make... Um, Proverbs and Job say the same thing. <laughs> Proverbs says, if you're a good person, you do good things, everything good's coming your way. Job's like, uh, nope. <laughs> I'm sitting over here scraping boils with broken pottery. I don't think this is going well. I'm a good person. <laughs> and so the idea of inerrancy, like here's what we have in the Bible. I brought one today. Here's what we have in this Bible. We have a sustained, ongoing argument, debate, and conversation across generations. We have certain authors saying one thing and others later coming back and arguing the point. We have, we have the Ezra-Nehemiah authors who are saying, if you're a Jewish male and you are married to a foreign wife and have foreign children, get rid of them. And then you have the book of Ruth saying, actually, King David, our ancestor, was born out of a union between an Israelite and a Moabite. If we get rid of those who aren't exactly like us, then we lose David. The Bible is an ongoing debate and conversation. Inerrancy flattens it out. It turns it into a one-dimensional, not very interesting collection of stuff. But when it's a three-dimensional pop-up book, right, that, where you see all these debates and conversations, now that's interesting. And so I actually think inerrancy is one of the worst things that you could possibly do to the scriptures. Because I don't think it's actually a high view of scripture. I think it actually demeans the text and the people who wrote it. Uh, yes. Well, I'm, I, I'm probably, you know, have a conflict of interest as a middle-class white guy. Um, uh, what, what should we be focusing on um, in the Jesus story? Like, we have several issues we focus on. What are the things we should be focusing on? Um, instead of just what wealthy white guys want us to focus on. Um, 
Look, I, I, I think that if we want to be tr- true to my understanding of the Jesus narrative, then what we focus on is we focus on issues of injustice. Right? So we focus on the fact that, that not only in the church but outside of the church forever, women have not been treated equally. They have not been given equal voice. They have not been given their rightful space at the table. They have not been paid fairly. They have not been treated justly. I think we look at the same thing in terms of LGBTQ plus community. I think we look at the same things in terms of white supremacy and racism, I think. And the fact that there's this idea out there that there's the gospel and there's the social gospel. Anybody heard of the social gospel, been warned about the social gospel? I can't find in the New Testament a single example of Jesus doing anything that wasn't social. And when Jesus gives his own sort of definition of what he's doing, he quotes the prophet Isaiah about people being liberated, about people being set free, about the oppressed being raised up. Um, And so it seems to me that if the church really wants to focus on what Jesus was doing, we focus on issues of injustice, and we shine a light on them, and we actually work to dismantle them. Um, Because for so long, the church has simply existed to maintain itself. Um, And that's, sadly, I mean, you've always had pockets of church that's trying to push back against the dominant culture, but especially here in America, I think we've gotten way too comfortable with, um, oh, well, we, we, we stay in our sphere and we do this, and then they, they run the show. Well, of course that's what Caesar wants you to do. Like, why in the world would Caesar have a problem with a religion that focuses on the afterlife? Because you can run rampant in this life and do whatever you want, and you give people this promise of pie in the sky, and they'll take it. When I think that's the brilliance of Constantine, I'll use the word demonically brilliant of Constantine. He realized that Christianity was a threat, and he couldn't stop it. So what, what's the next best thing? We'll co-opt it. We'll make it Roman. And the, Christ, the history of Christianity has borne out the fruit of that unholy alliance, I think. Um, so I'm trying to get a sense. I think we probably have time for like one more. I think one more here and one more in the one room. One more here and one in the room. Oh, great. Um, so I hate to do this one to you, but I don't think it would be a proper question response if you didn't have to do this one. Okay. Uh, this is a classic. Um, why do bad things happen if God is good? What do we do with that difficulty? Well, that's uh, next next Sunday. We'll talk a little bit about that. Oh. Um, so Tune this, in next week. <laughs> same bat time, same bat channel. Um, because I think that is, that is the struggle. That is what, in the wisdom literature, that's what our ancestors are wrestling with. Like, okay, if good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, why Job? If good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, why Jesus? And then we will try to interpret that well, uh, like God just had this plan all along, that God put us through utter hell just to get us where we needed to be. And is that really a good kind of, is that a good theology that leads to human flourishing? So that's what we're actually going to talk about next Sunday. Yep. Did Jesus ever ask to be worshipped? No. Not that we have recorded. And look, here's the thing. I think for Jesus and the people who knew him in his life, all first century Jewish people, 
If Jesus had walked up to them and said, I'm God, worship me, they would have ran from him so fast that it would have made his head spin. Because that's, that just wasn't the frame of reference. Um, when the Christian tradition was co-opted by Rome, Jesus became the new Caesar, like a spiritual Caesar. And, and, and so we, you know, I think very early on people revered him. I think that something maybe close to what we would call worship, but not in the way we, we, have, we have done it. And I think the real reason today is it's so much easier to worship Jesus than it is to actually take seriously what he said and did and then try to do it. Right? I think we had one more right there. So we'll, yeah, you. Okay, so I have three kids at Grace Point, and I had a great conversation with Sophie last week where she said, parents are the primary theologians, and part of her role at Grace Point would be to support parents, but that is a terrifying lot. <laughs> So that's another word I'm going to talk about in the next What About series is gospel. Yes. Oh, what was the question? How would you explain the gospel to small kids? Um, and the, the truth is the word gospel means good news. And in its context in the ancient world, it was a political announcement that Caesar had brought peace to the world. Right? So the gospel, before the gospel of Jesus, there was the gospel of Caesar. And so we have, when we're using that, gospel can mean lots of things, is what, I, what I'm saying that. So if you read, like in Mark, for Jesus, the gospel is that the kingdom of heaven is near. For Paul, the gospel involves the death and uh, resurrection of Jesus. So gospel is an announcement of good news. Um, I have five kids um, from 12 to 5. And if I'm trying to explain to them what I think good news is, uh, I'm going to focus less on doctrine I'm not going to focus on a lot of really theological terms. I'm going to talk about doing the thing Jesus tried to do, and I think did in his life, which is we are here to be a source of love and goodness and peace and justice in the world. And however you, wherever you find yourself, whatever you give your life to, whatever you give your energies to, I'm saying this to you, I wouldn't say it exactly this way to my kids, like your job is to bring heaven to earth, and to bring human flourishing to yourself and the people around you. And the good news is, God is with us, God is for us, God is on our side. And I wouldn't make it any more complicated than that. The gospel is not a ticket to the afterlife. The gospel is an announcement of what is possible in this world if we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear. So my main concern um, is not that... Um, that maybe that my kids are going to... Like, I, just, I think there are certain Bible stories we just shouldn't teach to children. Like, I, I, I'm constantly baffled at why on every children's Bible, um, and we have lots of them because everybody wants to give the pastor's kid a children's Bible. Um, and, like, like, we'll be the first. Um, and it's always Noah and the ark. And Noah is happy, and there's a rainbow, and there are animals, and it's like, this is so nice. Everything else drowned. <laughs> what are we doing? Like, I, I wouldn't let my five-year-old watch Freddy Krueger. I'm not telling you about Noah's Ark. Um, so I would focus on the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God is with you, God is for you, God is on your side, and that's true for every single person who's alive on this planet, and it's our job to go into the world and make sure that they know they are loved and that they have every opportunity in this world to flourish. That's right. That time?
Awesome. Y'all coming back up. If you didn't get your question in or if you have follow-ups, uh, I'm still formulating the next series, which will run for approximately 400 weeks. So <laughs> please feel free. Uh, email me, josh at gracepoint. Was it E on the end, as Murphy told you, not the other one? josh at gracepoint.net, and I would love to make sure we get that in. So thanks so much for being here, and thanks for your questions. <laughs>